Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is November 24th, 2007. I hope all of our great American listeners had a fantastic Thanksgiving holiday. Let's dive right into the latest dish from BOA Audio, and that is the first half of a marathon conversation with Keith Chester, author of Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II. Strange Company is all about the Foo Fighter era in ufology. The book really brings to light so much information that I had previously never heard of. Many people, I'm sure, hearing this interview will be hearing a lot of new information for the very first time. The Foo Fighter era has almost completely slipped through the cracks of contemporary UFO studies. Many people make the mistake of citing 1947, Kenneth Arnold, Roswell as the beginning, and then they add that sort of footnote that there was this whole Foo Fighter thing during World War II and then quickly move on. What we're going to do here this week is go on back to that Foo Fighter era and find out so much about what was going on during that time period. We're not going to read through the full list of important points during the interview, but trust me, we are going to run the gamut here, and this is just part one of our interview with Keith Chester. So strap yourselves in for a seriously detailed and deep discussion of the often forgotten Foo Fighter era. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Keith Chester, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Born in 1957, a Sputnik baby, Keith Chester's interest in UFOs began in 1966 with a daylight sighting while growing up in Frederick, Maryland. Art, film, and music have been the constant fuel from which he has drawn inspiration throughout his 50 years. His passionate interest in the UFO phenomenon culminated in the book Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II. At present, he's researching for another book, making abstract films, and tapping into the world around him. Keith doesn't have a website, but you can find... Strange Company Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II, all over the web. Go to Amazon.com, go to BarnesandNoble.com, either one of those places I'm sure will have the book, or simply go to Anomalous Books. They are the publishers of Strange Company. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on October 10th, 2007, Keith Chester, Part 1 of 2, talking about the Foo Fighter era in ufology on Banal of America Audio. Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. We have a very special guest with us this week. He is the author of Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II. This is an absolutely fantastic book. I just finished it a couple days ago, right before we do the interview, and I was just amazed by it. It really is an in-depth look at the whole Foo Fighter phenomenon of World War II, and as he notes in the beginning of the book, when you're reading a lot of UFO books, especially ones that cover the history of the UFO phenomenon, you know, they'll maybe give a passing reference to the Foo Fighter era or maybe spend a couple paragraphs, at most a chapter on it, and it'll be really a cursory chapter on the whole thing. So it's kind of become a forgotten era in UFO history, but it's very, very important, and it really comes before what many people seem to think is the beginning of the UFO era, which is 47 with Kenneth Arnold and Roswell and the atomic bomb and all that great stuff. 
all of the spoof fire stuff happened way before that. It's very, very important to the history of the UFO field, so I cannot commend him enough for a fantastic book, Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II, and we have the author here this week for an in-depth discussion on the Foo Fighter phenomenon. He is Keith Chester. Keith, welcome to the show. I really appreciate it, Tim. Thanks for inviting me to be on. Let's start out how we start them all out, I guess, with the bio and the background. Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you came from, and how you gravitated towards the UFO subject. Okay, first of all, I, um, I'm a freelance artist filmmaker, and um, that's what I do most of the time. However, what started with this project was a sighting I had in the uh, mid-1960s. I was living in Frederick, Maryland, and it was daytime. I was around 11 years old, and I ran outside, and out over the horizon, I saw a large circular red ball that was either about 200 to 300 feet away or was uh, far away and very large, and that scared me. I remember getting goosebumps. It was sitting motionless in the sky. Uh, it was solid red, so it wasn't being reflected. The sun was behind me down uh, behind the uh, Catoctin Mountains. But it was still around 6 o'clock summer, and uh, so I ran into a neighbor's house to get my friend to come out and look at it, and that fast it was gone. So that actually started my interest in UFOs. So I had a casual interest. I read a couple books and moved on. And finally, in around 1989, I was with some friends in Frederick, Maryland, and one of the girls told me that an English teacher um, at her high school had discussed having known about UFOs, and she uh, told her class that in 1969, under the CETA program, which is Civilian Employment Training Agency, she was in college and was able to be placed that summer in the Pentagon in the Office of Civil Defense as a secretary. Oh, wow. What was interesting was she was a secretary to a Colonel Sullivan, who was, to her memory, an Army officer. Uh, I asked her if he was Air Force, and she said, no, I believe he was Army. And uh, her job was to, it was just her in the office and Colonel Sullivan, her job was to maintain phone calls, correspondence, whatever he asked her uh, to do. So what took place that uh, one day that really startled her was that, uh, Colonel Sullivan was in the office adjoining hers, and three officers came in. She believes they were Air Force, and they were discussing what they should do with the UFO craft. When she heard that, she tried her best not to listen, um, but she couldn't help it. And they yeah. discussed having this craft. Now, this is at the Pentagon. What year was this? This is 1969. Okay. So as far as what year and what craft, I don't know. Maybe it was the Roswell craft. Maybe it was something more current. She didn't know. And she did her best not to um uh, Listen, but how could you not? Mm -hmm. But what really put the fear in her, uh, in the Pentagon, there was a library that was allegedly connected to the Office of Civil Defense or whatever. Well, from what she understood, it was broken into. And the FBI showed up at her home to question her. They questioned her friends. They literally scared the heck out of her. And she knows that the library allegedly was moved to the basement. This is all coming from her employer, the U.S. Army and Colonel Sullivan. And uh, that just really scared her. And so around 18, 1989, I guess that was about the time Charles Burlitz and uh, 
put out his book, The Roswell Incident. Whatever was taking place in the media, she felt it was okay to talk about UFOs to her class as a subject matter, and they all laughed at her, and she would tell them that story. Well, when I heard that, I said, well, that's fascinating. I need to talk to her. So I took it upon myself to find out what school she was in. But beforehand, I wanted to make sure since I hadn't conducted any type of interviews or research to this point, I did know enough that I wanted to make sure I didn't lead her. Yeah. And so I contacted who I felt was considered one of the best people in the field who was doing crash and retrieval research, which was uh, Leonard Stringfield, who has a very long history going back into the 50s mm-hmm. uh, with actual research in the field, attached to NICAP and his own organization, his own newsletter. And so I called him up, and much to my surprise, he was more than willing to uh, mentor me in the case. So we laid down some ground rules, what to say, what not to say. And when I approached her, um, she became very hostile because I just showed up and asked to speak with her after school. and No problem. We went back to a classroom. When I brought the subject up, she became hostile, wanted to know where I found that out. And I tried to tell her, well, this just came from students, that, and I just have an avid interest. Well, she really... She told the story to me, and uh, that was the end of it, and she told me never to contact her again. So I contacted Mr. Stringfield, and he said, well, she couldn't slap her his training order on you if you don't be careful. So let's just drop it and see where this goes. And he would try to see what type of information would arise in his files that would correlate with the Office of Civil Defense, which, of course, would be Army. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went on with that and because I felt that it was an army situation, the whole Roswell scenario. So I started investigating. Well, during the course of that, Schmidt and Randall investigation came out with their book. And uh, I decided when I was talking to Leonard Stringfield, he brought up his World War II sighting, which I found fascinating. And I decided I wanted to contribute something to the field. And, um, from there, I took his story, and I just ran with it. And by 1999, I decided, well, I need to, other than reading books and magazines that I could locate, I need to do some research. So uh, I tried to figure out what did exist. And if there was one document that acknowledged the UFO phenomenon, and especially uh, the Foo Fighters yeah. with Stringfield, so I found that document was the Robertson Panel Report, which was uh, the viewers, I mean, your listeners may know of, as the 1953 CIA-sponsored um, panel to determine if UFOs were a national security threat, because from 1947 to 52, there was an unprecedented amount of sightings throughout the country. And, of course, Roswell was in the summer of 1947. However, that was not an issue or was that ever mentioned until uh, much later. So I found that report, and within the Robertson panel report, it talked about the Foo Fighters being an unexplained phenomena. However, they dealt with electromagnetic uh, situations, St. Elmo's fire, whatever it was, it was still classified a phenomenon according to this report. And um, it said if the term flying saucers existed, during World War II, that term would have been applied. That just jumped off the page at me. And at that point, I determined, well, 
there was something definitely significant. What it is, I don't know. I didn't want to read too much between the lines. And I also wanted to try to forget what I had read, forget the literature, and go into it as being totally new, as if, as if I was an intelligence officer with the Army Air Force in World War II as the phenomenon came about. Yeah. So in order to do that, I wanted to find out exactly what kind of military and government documentation existed. So I contacted two of the foremost historian researchers in the United States, I felt, I still feel this way, Jan Aldridge of Project 1947 and Barry Greenwood. Uh, and Barry Greenwood had published a book, um, I guess in the late 1970s, with the government aspect of uh, what they know and documentation. They have extensive files uh, in their possession of government-related documents. So they gave me and sent me uh, what they had, and surprisingly, it was very, very few military or government documentation that dealt with the subject. Uh, most of it was with one night fighter unit during the war. So a lot of it was also civilian cases or actual cases that were in the press or actual letters written by witnesses during the war, but post-war years. So I still I wanted to concentrate on the actual military documentation. So in 1999 through 2003, I decided that for me to do anything, I have to do a concentrated research effort. And within two hours of my home was National Archives in College Park, Maryland. So I made weekly trips there, probably four to five times a month. Oh, wow. Um, for that period of time, for those four years. And I, I just dove into all the record groups. I believe there's, if I have this figure right, there's 500 record groups within the archives. Each record group, of course, has millions upon millions of documents. Uh, and record groups would be, let's say, the Army Air Force, Office of Scientific Research and Development, Department of State, uh, the Kennedy Assassination, uh, Department of Energy, Office of uh, Strategic Services, which was CIA. CIA files huge data bank for anyone who hasn't been there. So I just determined to go into the Army Air Force files and any other type of um, organization that would have been related to the military during the war, which yeah. was a great amount, and just dove into the records, found what Barry and Jan had in their possession, and just kept going. And that culminated eventually uh, this past May with my book. As I said in the introduction, it's amazing. Uh, it's a real education for people in the UFO field, I think, because, like as I noted, it, there really just isn't much information about the Foo Fighter era. Up until this book came about, why do you think there isn't any uh, real serious, there wasn't really any serious investigation into the Foo Fighter era, or at least, you know, it seems to have fallen through the cracks of ufology? Why do you think that is? Look, a couple things. I think uh, right after the war, it was such a horrible, horrible uh, mental condition that many people put the war behind them. And uh, the actual reports, were, they didn't exist. Nothing existed. What you had were, as the years progressed after the war, probably in the late 40s, did some of the veterans talk about them. There were articles written during the war about these things, but I believe that by the summer of 47, with the UFO phenomenon or the flying saucer phenomenon at the time taking off, it really just overshadowed anything that was prior because there was so much activity around the United States and the world that 
most of the research was concentrated on that. So they did include some of the, the more famous authors, did include a chapter or, or mention, but it was strictly what was taking place in the newspapers, what they had accumulated in the newspapers as a to show there was something before 1947. So we have the Kenneth Arnold on, which just overshadowed everything. That's yeah. my opinion of it. So as far as the the government military documents, they just didn't exist, or they because of uh, FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, more documentation was released into the public domain, but many people didn't have the access or the interest to go into the archives and find them. And so uh, I think it just uh, it was time. That's why I dived into it. Well, it's a huge contribution to the field. I gotta say, it's. Uh, you. you said you wanted to make a contribution. You definitely did with this book. It's worthy of any uh, serious UFO student's bookshelf for sure. Well, I appreciate that. I really do. And I just felt it was very necessary. And it was a point where I felt that in 1947, it seemed like there was some type of structure in place within the military and government that I felt that had to be in place beforehand, especially if the UFOs were exactly like they were prior to 1947, which it doesn't make sense why they wouldn't be, because we have, through history, you know they go back through centuries, allegedly. So I felt there had to be something in place because the military and governments were working hand-in-hand, and anything flying in the air during that period of time should have and would have been documented. So I guess let's just dive right into the uh, Foo Fighter phenomenon. And as we'll explain here in the course of the conversation, Foo Fighter is kind of the catch-all term for all these different phenomena. That's one of the, I guess you could say, uh, misnomers of the Foo Fighter and UFO world is that Foo Fighter really was just one small aspect of many, many different kinds of phenomena that were going on in the air during the war. So I guess let's just start out with sort of a rundown on some of these phenomena. I have here silver discs, glass balls, balls of fire, something called swarm of bees, Foo Fighters, of course, um, and it, the list goes on and on, essentially. And, and uh, So let's, I guess, just talk a little bit about what some of the various different phenomena were. Okay, well, it actually started right as the war began as lights, and uh, these lights were appearing to the... Uh, the RAF Bomber Command, which they thought were either some type of flare or a combat aircraft with a searchlight in the nose. So again, they attributed that to either the pilots who were misidentifying what they were seeing, hallucinations, or indeed some kind of weapon that the Axis powers were were utilizing. And there were, uh, it really progressed into flares. There were several types of flares being utilized, and they were given them names such as chandelier or scarecrow flares. A scarecrow flare would have been a flare that would actually appear to be at a distance, an aircraft going down, a psychological um, deterrent for the uh, RAF bombers coming into Germany in uh, 42 and on. And uh, as the war progressed, they were getting different names for a lot of these things. So flares, and there were uh, incandescent flares, there were lights. Uh, as you said, the disc-shaped uh, objects or the uh, silver disc, that came into 43. Now, what's interesting about that is when they made their mark on the scene, they had, uh, in September 6, uh, 1943, they were seen over Stuttgart, Germany, and then a month later, October 14th, in Schweinfurt. 
And these silver discs have been in ufological literature as being geared towards UFO-related aircraft, where, in fact, I believe these were one element that were possibly ordnance-related. And uh, they believe they were full of thermite or some type of explosive device that would bring down an aircraft, drop from a high aircraft uh, onto the bomber formations. And they resemble disc. They resemble glass balls. So it, some of the pilots in a combat situation seeing this disc go down by them may not realize the distance. It could be a large ship at a, at a distance or it could be something very close. So there was confusion. However, they had uh, brought, captured some of these, not captured, but recovered some of these, and one aircraft actually went down. They believe that one of these devices hit the wing. Uh, but it, it was still a nebulous subject. Uh, Air Intelligence Memoranda was confused by it, but there were many theories offered. And what I think was happening was there were ordnance devices in the air, but they were also being confused by maybe possible aircraft. And this is where it's just a shady ground. Yeah. And um, the, the swarms of bees you talk about, they uh, the bomber crews would see what they thought were, they also called them confetti flak. And they, what they believed they were were ordnance shells full of material to screw the radar up or actually get into the propellers of the aircraft to comp the engine out to bring it down. And they would be a swarm, like a swarm in a... Uh, confetti floating around in the air that the bombers would go by. So that was another ordnance radar-related type of thing that, depending on the distance, could be misidentified. And here again, the reason I'm, I'm saying this misidentification is because terminology has started becoming a very, very large problem with the confusion surrounding the phenomenon, yeah. the subject. And of course, throughout the memoranda, starting in 42, any time the things were seen, they were still being labeled as phenomena or phenomenon within the military intelligence reports. The balls of fire were a term given by the Air Ministry uh, Royal Air Force bomber crews, and at first they appeared to be some type of rocket or maybe a flare, but it was also a catch-all term because they were a bright light, they looked like they were on fire to, at nighttime to a lot of the British bombers because they were conducting nighttime raids. And then, of course, all these terms are all the way through the war, even like we discussed with the Silver Disc. Even though most of the intelligence memoranda had determined that this was possible ordinance related, even in '45. The Army Air Force Commander-in-Chief, General Arnold, was still getting reports with descriptions of what this stuff might be. So they weren't really, really sure if everything was related. And then, of course, the Foo Fighters, which everyone knows, did not really come on the scene until November of 1944. And uh, that term was named by one unit, the 415th Night Fighter Squadron. The men of that unit had, some of them were really into the Smokey Stover cartoons of the 1940s. And uh, Smokey Stover was a firefighter, madcap firefighter, and his vehicle was called the Fumobile, F-O-O-Mobile. And uh, so 
they just started naming them that. And of course, that term caught on through the rest of the war, but it was really only for a three or four month period where that term hit the intelligence memoranda. But it was that term that made it to the major press. Yeah. And that's how everyone around the world started understanding there was something strange being seen. One of the things I was wondering is, uh, in the book, there's only a couple pictures of purported Foo Fighters, but I was always under the impression that there was a fair amount of uh, like filming technology on these planes for the, uh, the gun cameras or whatever. Why is there such a lack of photographs of the Foo Fighters? Is it something that may have been confiscated by higher-ups when, when the planes returned, or is it just that they couldn't take pictures in time, or what's the scenario with that? Well, it's my impression that there was much air photographic intelligence kept on the subject and much film still photographs everything but nothing's been found and that means two things to me one either it wasn't my information is wrong and the pilots and the air crews who said yeah we you know we got film of this thing i know there was film uh it was taken to higher headquarters i don't know what happened to it after that it really wasn't their concern so one if it was let's say it was ordinance related well of course they would be taking pictures but why doesn't it exist at this uh, day and time, meaning that it was either so outlandish or so unique that to this day it is related to UFO phenomenon or it doesn't exist. Why? I believe that the photographic information does exist and for some reason it's being kept, uh, let's say, in the Pentagon or whatever archive for the military and government is keeping it. So the question is, what does it represent and why? So to me, if it is still being classified, there's something significant to it. And that's why the, uh, the intelligence memoranda still said phenomenon all through the war. Uh, so why it's not out and it's just another thing. Why, why so much documentation is missing, that is the mystery. That is the key to why we're trying to research this whole topic. Yeah. And you kind of touch on... The problem of the nomenclature, I guess you could say, of the time, where each sort of sighting was kind of like a snowflake in a way, and each person sort of had their own way of describing it. And as these reports kept coming in, they may have seen the same phenomenon, but they might have called it by different names. You know, one might one might come back and in the report will say flares, and the other one will come back and it'll say, you know, balls of fire. And obviously that was a big problem for the people investigating it. Yeah. From what you've researched and from all the reports that you've uh, looked at, and the book is just jam-packed with great reports on these sightings, is there any, uh, I guess you could say, like, classification of the different phenomena that, that was in the sky at the time? Yes, they started, uh, Bomber Command, the British Bomber Command, started classifying early on, and they had they had their flares, they had their balls of fire, they had, like, meteor-type rockets. They were seeing things that they assumed were rockets, but it was challenging their intelligence because, allegedly, the Germans didn't have these sophisticated rockets at this time. Uh, but they had to look at it as it was uh, German secret technology. So they had to start early and start this classification uh, to weed out uh, sightings that had, to, had similar names but meant the same thing. Yeah. But it became very confusing, and uh, even the War Department, I came across uh, some a file in the War Department General Staff, Special Staff files, where they actually had a spec binder that they gave, I'd say, different numbers to identify different 
type of sighting. So they too, the, the Army Air Force, of course, didn't start till 1942 actively in operations in Europe. So once they got on board, they were like starting to see these things too. So they too had to jump on and, and do the classifications. And even the classifications, they have to be looked at and understood that they they too are not accurate because, of course, it had to do with the air crews coming down, discussing their sighting with the air intelligence personnel. And, of course, that whole issue is confusing too because there were no consistent ways that the air intelligence personnel were handling the cases. They, in some cases, they laughed at the pilots, they ridiculed them, they made fun of them, they thought they were drinking. Other cases, the sightings were so incredible, yet the intelligence officers totally blew it off like it was seeing a, a normal German aircraft. Yeah. So that's the mystery in itself, too. What are the different types of uh, things that we know for sure? They would have been listed as flare-related, jet-related, rocket-related, and then, of course, experimental weaponry. Yeah. They tried to get them down into that. And there were so many crossovers, they were just meshing with each other because they couldn't get accurate reports from the air crews because, well, for one, the air crews were scared to death most of the time. So their observational skills were, were more on their targets or the attacking aircraft. Yeah. Uh, it was only in the cases where these guys were coming back from missions where they were alone in the sky, where they were over what they assumed was friendly territory that some of the sightings were able to be given in more detail. Now let's talk a little bit about how the uh, the governments, the armies really, the, uh, the Royal Air Force and the U.S. Air Force started investigating these things. Because as the pilots were coming in and telling these stories, then obviously there had to be an investigation because they weren't sure what these things were, whether they were, it seemed like they presumed they were German technology. So obviously they were going to investigate that because they needed to be ahead of the game, if you will, uh, during the war. So Let's talk a little bit about the, how the investigation came about and sort of how that evolved. And obviously it started with the Royal Air Force, then the U.S. Air Force came in uh, when they joined the war. Okay, well, I guess the first report to come out of the Royal Air Force would then have been August 11, 1940. And that title of that report was uh, Phenomena Connected with Enemy Night Tactics. And that was what they saw lights. And they were in situations where they assumed it was enemy aircraft. The question was, why would an enemy aircraft during a combat situation be flying around with its lights on the whole time, especially if it wasn't attacking or being attacked? They could never get to it. So there was a mystery there. And the way they started handling this was, of course, it had to be German. That's what we're dealing with. But on another situation behind the scenes, we had the information being funneled to the RAF from the RAF to the Air Ministry. And of course, the Air Ministry had a scientific intelligence division. And heading that was Dr. R.V. Jones, who many know was very involved with all the air intelligence matters for the Air Ministry during World War II. Now, he's, he personally believed there was nothing to the Foo Fighters. There was nothing to UFOs, nothing at all. However, when he first came on the scene, he was reviewing case files of all types of things, alleged reports of electromagnetic weaponry, uh, death rays, biological warfare, all types of crazy things that were coming in from all over the Europe mm -hmm. from intelligence operatives on the ground. 
So for him to get reports of an unusual craft, it would have been very important for him to, to do so. And I, unfortunately, these files are not, have not been found. But he um, had to be collecting this information for one just out of national defense. And in, early in the book, we know there were, t there were, in the 1930s, Scandinavia was being inundated. Finland, Norway, Sweden were seeing lights in the sky. Some were pretty dramatic. Some were just simply lights. Some appeared to be aircraft. However, the press of the day and the investigations conducted by Sweden and Norway determined that the aircraft were, were conducting maneuvers and operations that were far in advance of, of Russia or Germany or any of the suspected uh, countries that would be gearing up for war because this was in 1933, so we know that Germany didn't invade Poland until 39, and if they were conducting these types of extensive air operations, even over the out out of the coast of the uh, eastern United States, lights were being seen. The press is wanting to know these pilots are are operating in storms. They're flying in severe weather in areas that require fueling. Where are the bases? Where are they landing? Why are they operating over such treacherous territory with no apparent place to land when we're dealing with biplanes yeah. of the time? So it, I believe the investigations were in place for very unconventional aircraft starting in the 30s. When the war broke out, those investigations were still there but conducted within the Air Ministry and then when the United States came, became involved, through what's called the London Mission, uh, where we actually set up office in London, exchange, exchanged information. That is where we became very uh, involved with the phenomenon. That is, of course, if we weren't already, because we know in February '42 in the United States, the, uh, the alleged so-called Battle of Los Angeles occurred on the West Coast. Again, tr uh, triangle formations, lights in the sky, unaffected by anti-aircraft fire, and of course, General Marshall fires off to the president a memo determining that craft were seen, unknowns, that were fired upon, and to this date, that remains a mystery. So the United States and Britain, early war, were pro most likely involved with unconventional aircraft investigations, and my thought is they were not thinking extraterrestrial or something like that. It was definitely Axis powers and threat. So, but as the information came in, the signs were more remarkable. They just remained in the background, and uh, we don't see any any real official military investigation until 1943, when the RAF started investigating alleged rocket reports. These rockets are coming up or appearing out of nowhere. They're outmaneuvering the fighter aircraft. They can keep up with them. They go along with them. They disappear. And their intelligence told them Germany had not set up programs like that. And they they weren't aware of any type of rocket that could, could actually perform that and keep that kind of thrust. You know, some of the signs would last for minutes on end, and there would never be a distinguished light or anything. And these things would just maneuver and... So the investigations were in place, but they were being, of course, now overshadowed by military sightings, too. 
So uh, by the time that happened, and then, of course, when the Foo Fighters came on the scene, that was a very, very important aspect to the United States because in January, Schaefer was formed in Europe, and that would be the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force mm-hmm. under General Eisenhower. Well, in Schaefer, they had a scientific advisory section, and that was headed by Dr. H.P. Robertson, who, in 1953, was in charge of the Robertson panel that conducted the UFO research or conducted the investigation of the UFOs cited from 47 to 52 and if they affected national security. So we see a relationship there. So by then, Robertson had been in Europe with the London mission since 41. He was most likely aware of all the unusual sightings because he was friends with Dr. R.V. Jones of the Air Ministry. And then by the time Schaefe was formed, there he was. And we know for a fact, and I was the first to find actual documentation to show he was put in place, he was uh, asked to conduct the investigation, or at least oversee it, of the Foo Fighters, because that was the term they were using, of course, in the press. So I don't know how much was uh, being censored, and that's another problem. They were using the term Foo Fighter because that's what the public knew, just in case the press got a hold of the documentation where it was leaked. They could say, oh, it's just the Foo Fighters. We don't know what this stuff was. We've never been involved with it. But I tend to believe that they were totally investigating the unconventional aircraft all the way up until January when when Robertson took over. However, I don't have the documentation to prove that. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's really important to point out in the sense that Robertson is really well known in the UFO world for, of course, the Robertson panel. And um, what I didn't know until I read the book here was that he had been – Sort of involved in investigating this the UFOs uh, for way longer than than when the Robertson panel came out. So he, you know, he uh, he had a pretty pretty serious amount of investigation done into the whole thing. You know, probably would you say a decade at least uh, prior to the Robertson panel. Yes, and if he wasn't doing the investigations himself, he was overseeing the investigative apparatus that was. Yeah, and he knew the people who were. That's the key point. So he was well well informed. Mm-hmm. No he, doubt. Yeah, he was getting tons of information. Talk about uh, one of the key players in the book who is really uh, in there throughout the book, and that's David Griggs. Uh, I guess talk about his role in in uh, the whole Foo Fighter investigation and in throughout the war and all that good stuff. Okay, I'd say Dr. David T. Griggs was one of the most important uh, people involved with the um, with the phenomenon because. He was, at the time, in 1942, he was actually uh, the radar expert or scientific consultant to Dr. Edward Bowles. Dr. Edward Bowles was a scientific advisor to the Secretary of War, uh, Robert Patterson. So Dr. Griggs had an office. His office with was in Dr. Edward Bowles' office. And as a radar expert, Dr. Griggs was helping the United States Army Air Force with their radar and radar-related uh, apparatuses. And he was very instrumental in keep making sure that the equipment was uh, up to par, that it was malfunctioning, how they could improve upon it. And that was very important. And the, the aspect of radar is very important because, of course, the unconventional aircraft, flying saucer, UFO, whatever, were being detected and not detected on radar. So this in itself brought him to full focus on the situation. Mm-hmm. 
He and Robertson worked together on the advisory specialist group for the United States Tactical Air Forces. He was also involved with um, General Keeney's uh, Far East Air Force in the Pacific, and he also was asked to conduct the Foo Fighter investigation by General Arnold, who was the Army Air Force uh, Commander-in-Chief. He was uh, affiliated with uh, the ALSOS com uh, mission, which was the most important mission of the war, and that was headed by Dr. Samuel Gaussman. What's significant about that is the ALSOS mission was the United States' attempt to learn what the Axis powers had regarding the atomic bomb. They had reason to believe that they were very close to having the bomb, if not already having it. That operation was sent into Italy, and they had to determine what was known, but they really couldn't find answers till they got into Germany. So that, that mission in itself was very, very important. Dr. Griggs was friends with the scientific chief of that mission, Dr. Samuel Gaussman. Another important aspect of that is Dr. Samuel Gaussman was part of the Robertson panel. So we have three, we have two key players on the Robertson panel who were very well informed of the World War II situation and the Foo Fighters. Mm -hmm. Griggs was undoubtedly probably the most important player because, uh, from my information, he was one of the only civilian scientists or the only civilian in the European theater of operations who had a license to fly. So he could he could go to any Air Force base or any Air Force aerodrome or uh, airfield and grab a plane, and he had complete authority to do so and fly fly to his location. And he did so at one point when they were discovering some of the laboratories in Germany that had to do with atomic research. What's important about the atomic research is, let's say there were atomic bombs in Germany, and we don't think there were, but there's still controversy that they were very close. There's information that shows they were extremely close in doing this so close that General Eisenhower, one of the things that he didn't tell his men going in on D-Day was that going in with that, uh, with those waves were, were men who were had Geiger counters, who were checking radiation because they were scared to death that they were going to be in, using low-grade atomic particles in the V-1s and hit the beaches and just devastate the guys. That oh, they wow. were scared. Fortunately, that occurred on June 6th, and the V-1s flew on June 12th, but they went in towards London and Antwerp. They didn't, they didn't go into the beaches, so it didn't happen. But he was scared. That was, that was actually one of his worries, that they were going to be uh, radiated on the beaches. So they knew things were, were in the works. So the also's mission related to the flying saucer story is, if there were capabilities in Germany at the time, to deliver an atomic bomb somewhere. And that we know that they had planned to bomb New York. There was, there were definite plans. They had the Empire State Building targeted as, as ground zero. If aircraft of unconventional means that surpassed anything that we could get up to meet it could take this bomb over, it was important. So therefore, the unconventional aircraft, Dr. Griggs, Dr. Robertson, had to be on top of all this intelligence coming in. And that's why uh, another reason the Army Air Forces were definitely wanting to keep an investigation going. So they would probably label it as experimental aircraft yeah. for public domain. 
However, I think it was there may have been reason to think there was something else due to some of the extraordinary sightings seen in the war that was totally baffling to them and were beyond the uh, technological capabilities known at the time. Now, Griggs, he issued a, a report towards the end of the war on his investigation of the Foo Fighters, but you said that it, it can't be found, no one knows where it is. Right. Um, what's, the, what's the story with that whole thing? Well, in, uh, Dr. Griggs, it was 1969, he was uh, in California at a college, I forget what college off the top of my head, but Dr. Uh, James McDonald, who is, many know, his, a great force in the, the hunt for the answer to the UFO phenomenon, mm-hmm. was working as a professor at the University of Arizona. At, and he, of course, in his first few years, had come across these Foo Fighter reports. And he was trying to put together what it was. So, of course, Dr. Griggs came up, and he contacted Dr. Griggs in 1969 and conducted two telephone interviews with him. Griggs told McDonald that he indeed was asked by General Arnold to look into the Foo Fighters. This this is the European Foo Fighters. And then he was also asked to look into the balls of fire, which were the Pacific sightings, which were a little different than what the European were. He felt that the European sightings were more, were rare, they were different, and however, there were sightings in the Pacific that mimicked that type of sighting, that, but they were also among another whole situation where there were a lot of ordnance and uh, aircraft weaponry mm-hmm. that was being experienced for the first time that the pilots had to get used to, such as uh, the Baca, which was a pretty much a uh, a rocket sled, put a guy in it and just ram. So it was a suicidal rocket, basically. And uh, so they had to deal with that. But Griggs was interviewed by McDonald. The reports were written. He said so. They were passed on. But he never he doesn't have a copy. And where they went, that's the mystery. Because they're definitely not in the Army Air Force files. Uh, to date, they have not been found in General Arnold's files. And to date, they have not been mentioned anywhere else. So wherever, whatever is housing the phenomenon reports and this whole investigative aspect of the, of the situation during the war, these reports sit. I suspect it, it really is, is at the Pentagon where civilians aren't going to get their hands on it. Yeah. Just to sort of like talk a little bit about uh, the way you investigated this whole thing. Now, like let's say you wanted to find that Greg's thing. Do you have to go to the National Archive and look and stuff, or can you put in a request? Or if you if you put in a request for the David Griggs, you're probably going to get tons of stuff. Is there any way to really find that sort of thing, or is it just sort of you're going to have to get lucky? I believe it comes down to luck. Uh, I really think the FOIA, which is an excellent tool, uh, we've used FOIA for Dr. Griggs, but uh, no results. And when it comes down to researching the archives, there there is that chance, and that's what kept me going. I mean, I would go for months and find nothing, because what I had to do was look through all these military and civilian scientific organization records and learn what that was about. So there was never talk of anything related to the phenomenon, usually. So I'm learning how this worked, and for instance, I'd be looking for a report that I knew there was, a, let's say, a Foo Fighter sighting. Well, it wouldn't, be in, it wouldn't be where I thought it was. It wouldn't be in the record group, the Army Air Force group. But lo and behold, I'd stumble upon that report in another record group, which would be like the War Department record group. So one element of armed service would destroy the records. They were destroying the records. 
and, or it's still classified, or the copy was misplaced. They did that, and they had a war decimal file. Some of the decimal files would represent certain categories, like 319.1 is a decimal file number, which meant reports. 000.9 is a decimal file number that meant natural and unnatural phenomena. A lot of UFO post-World War II, like 1947 and on, were under 000.9. Some of those were found in that, that decimal file. So it could be anywhere, and if you look at some of the reports where they were generated to the other agencies, it's astounding. Some reports went to 13, 14, 30 agencies all over the place, so someone has it. It's just who got rid of it, who reclassified it, and that's the, the grab bag aspect of, uh, of searching the archives because you don't know where, they, where the files are going to be located. And most of the time, you can assume it has been censored or it has been gone through and taken out for some reason. Yeah. All right. Now, you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but uh, I think it's important to discuss. And that's sort of this disconnect between the pilots, uh, the intelligence people on the base, and the higher-ups who wanted the reports. And the intelligence people seem more often than not to ridicule the pilots when they came back or, as you said, you know, accuse them of drinking or all sorts of uh, foolishness. Um, and it's sort of a strange scenario here because the guys on the bottom of the rung, the pilots, they were interested in what happened, and the people at the top were interested, but the people in the middle sort of, uh, they kind of poo-pooed the whole thing. Talk a little bit about that culture, I guess you could say, that was going on at the time. Okay, well, well, first of all, at the squadron level, when the men were coming in from their missions, you can imagine the horror. They were dealing with people, their friends dying. They were dealing with a lot of horrific sights. Uh, they were scared to death. They were in close combat with uh, other aircraft. So they were coming in and, and, in a lot of cases, talking to the buddies who happened to be S2s or, or A2s, which were squadron-level intelligence people, to take the, the report, interrogate them, calm them down, try to extract as much information as possible so they could collect, correlate all the, the reports and put some type of picture together. So at the squadron level, you think, okay, what's going on here? In a lot of cases, the intelligence officers just didn't believe it. When they heard these wild stories and these incredible stories, they one thought, well, the guy was scared. He misidentified something. He saw something that just wasn't there. Out of fear, he hallucinated. And so you have that, but at the same time, you'll have scenarios where the S-2 officers for some reason, at the squadron level, would act as if it was nothing. They were hearing something. These, uh, some of these men would give them stories that, that came out of the annals of science fiction, yet they were like, uh-huh, that's fine, took, took the report, but act nothing, no questioning, nothing at all. So you suspect that, well, were these intelligence officers at the squadron level informed by the different commands to handle the reports differently? So we have a... a an array of reporting systems. We could look at it in several ways. One, let's say it's Bomber Command, and they have their unit intelligence officer interrogating the people. And the unit intelligence officer starts to ridicule the bomb crews. Well, the first thing that's going to happen is the, the bomb crew people are going to resent it. They're going to be fearful of being grounded because they didn't want to have to go for psychological analysis, and so they're going to shut up. 
Well, the higher commands realized, well, they shut up. We're not going to get the intelligence data we need. So don't ridicule them. But then you'd have other commands who may have said, look, we know it's, we know what's taking place. Take the report. Keep quiet. Don't say anything. Don't offer any information. Take it. Get it to us immediately. Of course, that's speculation on my part. But when you look at the reports and you look at throughout the war how this was being handled, then you say, well, why is there no set standard for taking these reports? And, of course, I think we're just dealing with human factors here. The great example of that was during a 1942 sighting and where I have a quote uh, from a this would be num number five group to Bomber Command relating to a, a pretty incredible sighting. And uh, December 3rd, 1942, and it says here, this went to the Bomber Command. Herewith, a copy of a report received from a crew of a Lancaster after a raid on Turin. The crew, crew refuses to be shaken in their story in the face of the usual banter. And that's official documentation, so that shows that for some reason, the RAF crews were being harassed and ridiculed. Some people thought they were drinking. So it just, to answer your question, that's a mystery that I need to further explore because since there's so little documentation that shows that, I have to assume a scenario and then investigate it in that light to see what comes forth. Yeah. But right now, it's just, it, you pick the unit, you might find different ways. Mm -hmm. so. Nowadays, like, you know, when the military-type folks see UFO and they tell their boss or whatever, uh, oftentimes it comes back and they're like, you know, they take the information and they're like, shut up about this. Don't tell anybody. Um, it doesn't seem like that was really the case during World War II. Did that happen very often, and, and or did it develop over time during World War II, or, you know, was it just like you said, that depended on what different branch you were at? Yes, it, there were cases. I, I can, off the top of my head, I think I can think of two. One case was where the the unit that actually named the Foo Fighters, the 415th, uh, Harold Augsburger, Major Harold Augsburger, was the unit commander for the 415th station in France of the Night Fighter Unit. And at one point, he was told and heard through his operations officer to drop the subject. It was uh, a classified situation. So there in itself, that was pretty much don't pursue it. Yeah. As far as the pilots and crews themselves, no. I, I, I've heard stories, but I'm not sure how accurate those stories are. So, but generally, no. There was nothing that. Don't talk about this. They really wanted the intelligence to come in because you know the primary situation was there was a war going on, a heavy duty situation with uh, Germany being very advanced, and they knew they were going to be encountering some pretty incredible things, such as jets and rocket-propelled aircraft. Yeah. All right. Now, I cherry-picked some of the key cases I thought stood out, and uh, we'll just sort of hit on these, and feel free to add as much detail as you want. Let's really dig into some of these key cases. And I guess the first one, and I'm just – I sort of just uh, uh, just went by the names that, that are affiliated, I guess you could say, with the cases. So you'll, you'll know which ones I'm talking about, I'm sure. And the first one is the Savinsky case which is really the first big one, it seems, where there was uh, shooting at the objects and, and all sorts of crazy stuff happened. So why don't you talk about the Savinsky sighting or case uh, first, and, and we'll talk about that. Okay, to me that is probably the key to this date, uh, early war sighting. Uh, now, the problem is there's no official documentation. However, we have Savinsky uh, on tape 
relating his story. And um, I, for one, am not going to call someone a liar or disbelieve them. And hearing his his uh, testimony on the whole encounter is just something remarkable happened. And it, it took place on June 25th, 1942. And uh, Captain Sabinski was a Wellington bomber pilot. He was uh, with a Polish division attached to the RAF. And he had been going into Germany over the Ruhr Valley because that was the industrialization area of Germany uh, on a bombing mission. Coming back, he was out over Holland, Holland heading into, uh, I believe, the North Sea. And coming up on the rear of the aircraft with a round, shiny object, it was copper-colored, uh, solid. It looked as if it was like a setting sun color all the way through. And it was the size of a full moon. So this object came up on the aircraft, and of course, Sabinsky said, well, this is something, a rocket, whatever it is, it's coming after us, it's going to attack. So he let it get fairly close to the aircraft, I believe several hundred yards, 200 yards or so, and told his men to open up. And so two of his gunners opened up simultaneously on this object, and the remarkable thing that they witnessed was that their tracer rounds were entering the object. They were sure of this because they of the, the two guns meeting at one point, and they weren't exiting. They weren't going through it. They weren't bouncing off this. They were just disappearing into this object. So that startled, of course. Uh, after a while, the circular object jumped from one wing over the aircraft to the other with remarkable maneuvering capabilities. And uh, they fired into it again, and it shot off. It took off, and so they were pretty startled. When they got on the ground, they uh, reported it, and the first thing out of the intelligence officer's mouth was, you were drinking. <laughs> so they shut up because Savinsky knew not to push an issue like that. And so Savinsky decided to do some of his own investigation, and he asked one of the bomber crews who had come in a few minutes after he did, and indeed, that crew, too, saw the object, encountered this particular object, and uh, they chose not to report it. But Sabinsky and his crew did, so that report disappeared into the black hole of great documentation that should exist. Uh, so that, to me, was one of the key early war to show that Okay, if this was 19, June 25th, 1945, okay, possible experimental aircraft, who knows what, but you can at least give it some type of, okay, there's more that it could, might be, they just misidentified. But this early in the war, I don't see how Germany had any type of rocket capability, even though they had rockets that could do and perform in that manner. So that, to me, was, was a very key case to yeah. start off the whole book. And I guess before I go to the next one, as the war went on, these strange sightings became sort of like uh, people knew about them, I guess you could say, the pilots and stuff. And, you know, uh, it wasn't a big surprise to other pilots, I guess, when it happened to, you know, their friends or whatever. But uh, when the Savinsky case happened, how, how prevalent were these strange sightings? Was, it, was this really out of the ordinary or was it sort of like, you know, the guy came back and he was like, hey, I saw it too type of thing? To my knowledge, it was pretty out of the ordinary. That, of course, is just limited to my knowledge of the subject. How many veterans went to their grave or still are holding on to this information from that period? That's the problem. Because, mm -hmm. uh, like I said, the ridicule that they were receiving in the early war uh, generally was they didn't like the repercussions of that. They didn't like to be looked at. They were 
they were on an honorable mission to conduct combat against the enemy, and the last thing they wanted to do was report something that was really out of science fiction magazines in terms of anything else that the uh, Allied Air Forces were aware of or knew of, or how could something, you know, how could you possibly shoot at something with two machine guns and it, it doesn't affect it and it sucks it up like a, a black hole? Yeah. You know, you, you didn't see that correctly. That was not something you saw. It was farther away than you realized. Uh, there's no way a rocket could jump over from one side of your aircraft at an extraordinary speed. There must have been two. So you can see how that would have happened and why that would really have scared a lot of the crews from reporting the greater the greater sightings. Yeah. And then the next case uh, you kind of touched on already, but I guess we'll delve into it a little more, and that's the Stuttgart Schweinfurt series, I guess you could say, of cases. And uh, it's the only case where uh, a plane goes down via whatever the unknown anomaly is, and that seems to suggest it probably was um, some kind of flak or, you know, uh, defense, I guess you could say, from, uh, by the Germans. And uh, it also sort of highlights the key problem with the Foo Fighter phenomenon in, in that trying to figure out what's coming from the Germans and what's coming from, you know, beyond Earth is really tough to do. And the Stuttgart-Schweinfurt case really sort of uh, exemplifies all that in one. So uh, I guess talk a little bit about that and the downed plane and, and why you think that was probably ordinance and not something extraterrestrial or maybe a mix of both. Well, if we can look at it several ways. For one, that series of events, we know that in the Mediterranean theater of operations and then, of course, European, these so-called ordinance-related disks were being observed in the memoranda. So we're following, if we look at the picture here now through the eyes of the intelligence memoranda, they were saying it was ordinance and they were putting the theories of, of what it might be because apparently they had recovered one of the objects, but that hasn't been proven yet. But the intelligence memoranda reflects that the ordinance aspect of this and then of course you have these pilots who were seeing the uh, the objects fall from above. They were falling in a, in a downward pattern, so that in itself seems like an aerial bombing, something high up released it. However, they never could determine where the source was. They never could find the German high altitude bomber or whatever to drop these things. Yet in the state of combat, I could see how high altitude aircraft may not be seen. Mm -hmm. especially when you're not looking for it and it's been dropped and the thing has moved on, the aircraft itself. So there were several, what they saw, glass balls, a silver disc, and there were things called rods that were, it was an aerial ordinance. They were trying to come up with any way they could to screw up the bomber formations because they were just raising hell with the industry in Germany. Mm -hmm. So it all made sense. But what doesn't make sense is you will get other reports, not in the intelligence memoranda, that said that they saw these discs or these silver balls or these glass balls or whatever they were that were huge. So, uh, there are some cases that, where they were very large. They maneuvered in towards the um, the aircraft and moved out. So here again, I think we have a, a situation where several types of phenomena were being seen ordinance and possible unconventional aircraft or flying saucer or whatever. And that is the problem. But the significance of the two bombing raids, the Stuker and the Schweinfurt of 1943, is that the term flying disc or disc shape was now in the memorandum. And because of that, you have a pilot reporting something, oh, I saw one of the silver disc. Well, they just assume, oh, the ordinance. Well, that guy could have seen a silver disc hovering out in the distance, and it was actually an aircraft. 
but they just threw it in there. Yeah. And that, this is where the controversy arises. But I would say most UFO researchers today uh, consider the Schweinfurt and Stuckert the ordinance-related aspect. However, we have to be careful and not discount some of the reports due to the fact that they may have been seeing something very unusual in addition to. The one plane that went down because uh, one of the things, the uh, you know, the phenomenon or whatever it was, fell on the wing of the plane and the plane went down and they lost a guy. Um, you think that's ordinance related? Yes, that it seems to be ordinance, absolutely. And, of course, the report that that came out of it gave a very brief description, so I never did find the report of the downed aircraft or who that was or uh, that remains to be discovered, and it seems to me that just to look at it through the eyes of ordinance, okay, if something's falling out of the sky to to disrupt your engines, such as we know with the confetti flak, they thought that that's what they were going to try to do, suck it into the engine, shut it down, mm-hmm. or just dropping debris out of the sky uh, just to hit these aircraft. Well, you know, one aircraft gets hit, he f- falters and crashes into another and just raise havoc. Uh, these were were situations, but I don't have any reports from the German side. I don't have that, oh, we didn't indeed drop these discs. We don't have that. Or if it exists, I haven't discovered it yet, or I'm not aware of it. Yeah. That's, that's again, it's the mystery. Part of the reason why it probably stands to reason that it's ordinance is that in the whole vast collection of reports here in Strange Company, uh, there's no real reports of hostility by the Foo Fighters or aerial phenomena or, you know, what we would term as UFOs. So it doesn't exactly. it seems like that they were non-hostile, so it wouldn't make much sense for them to down a craft. Exactly. If it was an aircraft or, or, or a drone, it means it's a suicidal type of thing. But if you go to the Pacific, they had crazy things they were seeing, such as they called them in the, uh, the memoranda fire extinguishers, balls and chains. Uh, egg crates, and these things are just different objects just to raise havoc. Actually, two balls with a chain, so that chain would wrap around the propeller to stop it working. Huh. So they actually saw that. So if you look at the Pacific War, what the Japanese were doing, and go back to Stuckert and Schweinfurt, you say, ah, oh, an attempt to knock those planes down. Yeah. And they were, you know, Germany was just having a hell of a time with that, trying to keep that at bay, you know, because they were, uh, they just, they couldn't afford to lose industry, so they had to go underground what happened at the end of the war because of that. Mm -hmm. And the next key case I wanted to uh, mention and point out was the Leap case. And as you say in the book, that's the first case uh, of which you know uh, that mentions heat coming from the object. The pilot saw an object and he experienced some intense heat. Uh, Talk a little bit about the Leap case and how important that one is. Okay, so we're we're moving on to uh, 1944, and that's November 24th, which uh, is uh, a good date because this was over Italy, Tri- uh, Trist, Italy, I believe it's called, and it was Captain William Leet with the U.S. 15th Air Force. Uh, Captain Leet and his crew were on a lone wolf mission to bomb a target in Salzburg. A lone wolf mission meaning one aircraft, run at night, hit your target, and run. Just a harassing situation. Just mm-hmm. give it up. And it also gave the pilots an ability to accumulate another mission to get them out of there. After 25 missions, they were gone. No more flights. And that was the, oh, we got, if we can make it, but it was very rare that you could hit that. So he was on his, they were on their way home and coming off the, uh, one of the wingtips was a perfect circle, yellow in color, and they were out over the Adriatic Sea. And for 50 minutes, this circular object was about 10 feet in diameter, what they thought, paced their aircraft. And at one point before it disappeared, as it zoomed away, 
one of the crew members, I believe a ball gunner, I'm not sure, felt the heat of the object. And um, so it was disappeared in the distance like a light switched off. And that is the first time there's actual physical reports of, of an encounter. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the report does not exist. But what is key with this case is uh, William Lee became a huge proponent in MUFON. He was one of, the, I think, a state director or assistant state director. He became very good friends with Richard Hall. And um, before his death, up to that time, he was a big proponent that we were dealing with uh, extraterrestrial aircraft. Yeah. And, of course, he uh, he had reported that to his intelligence officer, who, by the way, did not uh, ridicule him, but was but treated in shock, like he could not believe it, because they knew for a fact there were no um, searchlights, which were a real problem, and there were no anti-aircraft defenses of any real means in that area. So f- for him to encounter something like that, it, it really shook, according to uh, Leet, the intelligence officer, who he told it to. Wow. And then the last case I have here that I have written down for key cases, and then we'll get into some other ones that, that you think are important. The last one here I have on the list is the Len Stringfield case. A lot of people probably don't know that uh, ufological legend Len Stringfield, they probably maybe know that he was a pilot in World War II, but maybe they don't know that he had a Foo Fighter sighting. So, uh, And there were some significant elements to his sighting. Uh, let's talk about Len Stringfield's sighting and what those significant elements were. Okay, well, Len, what's significant about Len Stringfield's sighting was that it was August 28, 1945. The war was over, both the European and Japanese theater of operations. And so the Allied Air Forces had complete air superiority. So the key thing about Stringfield sighting is he was uh, with the intelligence, uh, intelligence capacity with the 5th Air Force. And Len was one of some of the first men to fly into the Asugi Aerodrome in Japan to prep it for the invasion of Japan in November. So he was, after the bombing of Nagasaki, he was some of the, he was with the first group of air intelligence to go into the air base, set it up, and everything else. He was flying uh, out over open ocean between the islands of Ia Shima and Iwo Jima in a C-46 aircraft, and um, he was looking out the window, and out from a cloud bank during broad daylight were three teardrop-shaped what he assumed were intelligently controlled aircraft that looked like glowing magnesium come out of the cloud bank and approach the aircraft at a distance, he said, of holding, a a lot of the uh, World War II veterans say this, holding a dime up at arm's length. Yeah, I noticed that in the book. (laughs) It was interesting he said that, but that's what he saw. No problem. Very mystified by the subject, I mean, the, uh, the sighting. However, about that time, the aircraft started experiencing uh, mechanical malfunction. He heard a lot of commotion in the cockpit, didn't understand what. The uh, co-pilot came back to prepare to ditch the aircraft, uh, prepare for a ditching, which scared scared the hell out of him, according to his story. He uh, said that he then noticed that about that time, uh, it was only, I guess, a few moments that those three aircraft went back into a cloud bank, and his aircraft then regained control. Well, they made an emergency stop at Iwo and uh, he got out of the aircraft and noticed that the left wing had leaked oil all the way down the side of the aircraft. So he wanted to try to interview, or at least ask the pilots what was going on, but they had been whisked away for debriefing. 
and uh, he had things he had to do according to his assignments, and uh, was not able to do that. Then he made his way back to, uh, of course, the Asugi Aerodrome. He never did find the pilots. He never did find out what happened to the report, if any. But it was a very significant report because we now have a, a, an engine malfunction which seems to be associated with those aircraft. Yeah. To that day, so the day he died, um, this is according to uh, Richard Hall, because Lynn never told me this, that he would never fly again. When he got out of the service in November 1945, he never flew in another aircraft because of that event. Wow. He just took mass transportation. And then, of course, as we all know, or people new to listening, he devoted pretty much the rest of his life to UFO research. And what are some of the other key cases you think Bear mentioned here from the book and, and from this period and era in ufology and in the Foo Fighter era? I'd say uh, some of the key cases early would be uh, – August 5th, 1942, which were, uh, was a sighting by a witness on the USS Helm destroyer uh, off the Solomon Islands, and this was in preparation for the first of the island hopping campaigns. Uh, that Those islands included Guadalcanal, so you can imagine the severity of what was going to be happening to the Marines coming ashore. Uh, the fleet sat offshore. This is August 5th. I believe the actual island campaign started on the 7th, and uh, Coming in on the fleet was a silver-colored, and this is the first time that a cigar-shaped object had been reported. Um, towards the fleet, the fleet completely opened up. The object was hit with, uh, was it within range and circled the fleet and no hits. But what's incredible about this is not only the first silver cigar-shaped object was that According to personnel on the USS Helm, it was clocked at over 10,000 miles per hour wow. departing. So, once again, this was uh, reported by the ship's captain because they couldn't break radio silence at that stage of the game. So, he assured the crew, according to this, uh, this witness, that he would contact air intelligence to determine what they encountered. And word came back, and according to his captain, it was not Japanese or German. And that's the last he heard of it. Now, of course, this report came after the war by the witness. So we are missing missing that type of documentation. However, it's significant in that it started the silver-colored cigar-shaped objects that we saw later in the 50s and 60s appear on the scene. Another key case was over Turin, Italy, in November of 1942. RAF squadron. Captain Lever was on a mission and looked out about 200 to 300 feet in length with an object traveling what he thought to be around 500 miles per hour. And um, it had four red lights that were equally spaced along its body. That in itself startling because it had the appearance of no aircraft with wings. Now, was that a Zeppelin and was it a, a balloon? Well, there was no reason for those two type of... Uh, aircraft, or I mean balloons or a Zeppelin to be in a vicinity of a combat zone. Two, the actual craft was seen earlier by another crew over Amsterdam that had been on the ground, came up and was traveling along the Alps. But this, uh, it was able to travel at 500 miles per hour. It was maneuvering and it was wingless. So it was actually just right there. So that is the case where they investigated that Bomber Command received that 
the crew refused to be shaken in the story mm-hmm. of the usual badger. So that's pretty significant because that's our first official documentation that something very strange was seen. Air intelligence didn't believe it, so to cover air intelligence, but they had to state that that you know we gave them hell. We told them they were seeing things they they misidentified, and they the crew would not change the story. So that's very significant. I guess the key sighting of 1943, which there weren't a whole lot that I have that were very significant. However, over the Ruhr Valley near Essen, Germany, and the Ruhr Valley, again, is the industrialization aspect of Germany. RAF pilot Gordon Cockcroft and his captain Ray Smith were flying a Halifax bomber where they saw a cylindrical object. It was silvery gold, and he described it of having several portholes that were evenly spaced along the craft but it hung motionless in the sky as they went by. And as they approached, then it sped away at what he estimated at thousands of miles per hour. So I would assume that a pilot in those days could determine or could mess up when it came to a couple hundred miles per hour. But the fact that he said it was in the thousand miles per hour shows that it was so significant it was beyond the technological aspects of any aircraft that he was aware of. Mm-hmm. Of course, he reported it to the intelligence officer, and when he did, it made no impression on the intelligence officer that he reported it to. And that really confused him. But he dropped it, and the official report it doesn't exist. And then in uh, early 1944, this, uh, you know, Captain Leeds sighting was in November. Early in 44, there were two sightings in February of over Germany. One was over Germany near Aachen, and they saw a silvery cigar-shaped object. And the key thing here is terminology, and this is this was an official report, like an airship. So the key here is like an airship. Not it was an airship, but like an airship, and it appeared to be a line of windows along the bottom of the object was seen. And that was also in the same uh, another report in um, February of 44 over France. There were sighting with three silver objects, and the key point here is resembling Zeppelins, moving independently of the wind, and they weren't connected, so there was some type of individual control associated. Now, these two reports were in Air, uh, United States Army Air Force Intelligence Memoranda, as per RAF Flak Liaison Officer reports, and these were... Re- these were uh, Officers who went up with the missions to observe the crew, the combat situation, just to determine if the crew are reporting accurately and just another set of eyes that, that was not straddled with the aspect of, you know, having to mount a machine gun or fly or watch nav. He was just there for observation purposes. So that's very significant. Then another very important sighting has been August 12th, 1944, over southern France. And, um, Brian Frau and Ronald Claridge, uh, they had a sighting of an enormous disc that probably is five times the size of their Lancaster aircraft, hanging motionless in the sky, portholes along the side, and it sat there and then in an instant shot out of sight with no sound or exhaust. Uh, they reported it, and the intelligence officers were not interested. So this is 44, so we're starting to think, well, did that unit start to say, look, 
Don't let on that you're worried about this. Act as if there's nothing wrong. Get that intelligence report to us. So that's what I'm assuming may have been taking place. Yeah. Then we have, of course, starting two days after Captain leaked, we have the signing of the first official report signing of the Foo Fighters, which was by the 415th Night Fighter Squadron. And for the next four months, we a variety of sightings of a single and multiple lights, some that just appeared out of nowhere, some that seemed to come from the ground, some that came from above. And it was definitely um, enough to completely mystify the unit. It was enough to bring somebody from Washington into the unit to investigate it, which was, of course, kept secret. They actually went up on a flight to try to see it themselves, but I don't believe that took place where they did see it. And uh, Major Augsburger, who cited himself, that's, he saw uh, his, I guess, around December, he went up, and when he saw it, it was a light that came off the wingtip. And then after a while, it, it maneuvered with him. They couldn't maneuver around it. It was able to mimic their capabilities, and then it shot straight up into the stars to disappear. That startled him, and he started thinking, you know, this sci-fi realm of it, because they just could not account for German technology, because they knew what the V1 was. They knew what the V2 was. ME-262s and ME-163s were on the scene, and within weeks, pilots were able to, to actually engage in combat with these, because they knew the flight characteristics. They knew that the jet needed so much space to turn around, so they, you know, being a single prop aircraft, they could just cut in on it and, you know, actually engage it to some extent. Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty key. And then uh, I guess one of the last signs I'd like to bring up is like March of uh, 1945. And this would be the first time that a ground unit reported what I think was, were Foo Fighters. Mm -hmm. And this was between Mannheim and Darmstadt along the Audubon. Infantryman John Norris was camped along a highway with his unit, and coming up parallel to the highway were six or seven yellowish-orange circular objects. No sound. It was somewhat foggy. They were three to four feet in diameter. They acted independent of each other, traveling at about 10 miles per hour, and I'd say he said uh, 150 feet or so in the air. Came along where they were bit black and then proceeded down along the highway silently. And it was very eerie, very different. So, one, we know it wasn't flares, the way that they performed. Two, they were traveling too slow to be aircraft of any known type. There was no noise. Uh, and, of course, balloons don't operate in that type of manner. Yeah. Anything that would be applied that their intelligence people would say. Now, I have no idea what happened, but it wasn't just like he saw it. The whole unit did black there, so that report, too, is missing. <laughs> so there's some great, great reports. Andy Roberts and Dr. David Clark in England are very instrumental in bringing about the Foo Fighter and the, the, the wartime reports in Britain by the Air Ministry, because they've done great work, and Andy Roberts was one of the first people, I believe, to do an in-depth investigation of the Foo Fighters that he ended up dropping. He just didn't pursue any, uh, any longer. I believe Jan Aldrich and Barry Greenwood came up with some of the reports that they encountered in interviews, all interviews, post-war. So you, you see these incredible sightings. You see some type of... Um, Aircraft that today is being seen, you know, cigar-shaped, cylindrical-shaped, portholes, uh, able to hang motionless, able to travel at speeds beyond any known aircraft capability. So 
we can see how indeed the UFO of today appeared to be right with us in World War II. And the next element to the story I wanted to get into was Bob Wilson, uh, I believe Associated Press reporter, went over to Europe uh, right around New Year's Eve. He wanted to fly into enemy territory or something like that uh, as the clock struck midnight, and he had a big idea for a big uh, AP story on that. And, and, of course, it turned into something totally different, and it resulted in the explosion in the media of the Foo Fighters and probably what we have to blame, I guess you could say, for, for the popularity of the name Foo Fighter and that sort of thing. I think that, that media explosion probably was is why we call them Foo Fighters nowadays. I guess just share with us the, the Bob Wilson story and how that came about and the subsequent media explosion. Okay, yeah, Bob wasn't true. That's, he wanted to scoop uh, that particular New Year's uh, Eve. He wanted to get up there and be the first to report during a bombing mission over Germany because there was uh, much... Much anticipation that the war was going to end fairly soon. Uh, they felt that uh, since the Battle of the Bulge, Ardennes Offensive had been uh, pretty much taken care of. Germany was now on the run big time. And so he wanted to be, of course, here we are. We are going to rescue Europe finally. And it was during that time a storm moved in, and it was too too much, um, too much fall or too much... Uh, Lead or ice that they kept the uh, night fighters on the ground. So he was with the 415th Night Fighter Squadron. Of course, he didn't know about the Foo Fighters. However, they uh, played cards and they spoke well into the night. And uh, they said, "Well, we'll, we'll give you a story. Okay. We'll tell you about the Foo Fighters." And he just sat there and listened about all these stories because by then, just about everybody had seen the Foo Fighters at least once. Some guys saw them six or seven times. Oh, wow. And uh, it became old hat. They laughed about it. They weren't, It became a point where the, the guys weren't really scared of it. They were just, like, mystified by it. So he, he took that story and ran with it. And by the next couple of days, uh, major press picked it up. New York Times, it was Carabinet, Tribune, Time, Newsweek started getting the story. So it really started to flurry. And, of course... Foo Fighter was the key term. Yeah. And uh, it was as if nothing ever else was seen. So that shows the censorship already with the military and press because they, there was very little, as, as what you would call aerial phenomena, that was released to the press at all. And uh, because of that, the scientists and the engineers and the people back home started saying, well, this is what we think it was. We think it was remote-controlled devices, uh, radar and or engine interference type of uh, devices used, you know, to either scare or take the uh, the aircraft down. They could have been magnetic devices that attracted to the aircraft just to play a cat and mouse to take the attention off of the combat mission. They a secret weapon, hallucinations, optical illusions. And uh, it was just just like you read today. Someone sees a report, next thing you know, you get, okay, you may have seen this, but then you start seeing maybe some character assassination or really disregarding what that person saw. What's, what was really a problem was knife fighter pilots were the cream of the crop or were very few in number. I believe 81 to 82,000 pilots were trained during World War II, American Air Force pilots. Only around 400 were night fighter pilots. 
Oh, wow. These guys were had to, you know, they were flying by the seat of their pants. They were flying by radar, which was constantly under development. They were in a combat situation, and they were flying several hundred feet above the ground at times. Their mission was to go in and attack railroad stations, railroad cars, truck convoys, anything that had a light on it. So their vision was pretty uh, pretty good, and they were able to um, distinguish a lot. And they had to really have their factors together in terms of not overreacting, not panicking. And so they were a pretty brave, somewhat crazy lot. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so there they were, and they were seeing these stories coming out of the press from guys back home, armchair researchers, armchair theorizers, and saying, oh, no, you didn't see that. You saw this, or it was that. And... These guys were reporting things that they were – some, they, they could see no physical craft behind. In some instances, they felt they saw sharp outlines of the craft, but they never saw wings. So they were – that was confusing them. So they were sure that when they're looking out off their wingtip, and it's a foggy night, and there's something out there mimicking the flight pattern and the evasive, evasive maneuvers of their aircraft – and they're trying to engage it in combat, and they can't. It's more than them hallucinating. Mm -hmm. Plus, it was some. In some instances, they picked it up on radar, but in most cases, the radar operator could not find it, even though he was looking out the window right at it. And uh, they were sure it was not meteorological or natural phenomena, uh, just because they were there to analyze it. But for those back home, it was. It, there's no way that it couldn't be. It couldn't be as simple as that. So, in general, I think the military were determining that it was secret weaponry. And so the, the pilots were looking at it as that, even though they suspected otherwise, because it was too far of a leap for Germany at the time in, situ in that situation. Yeah. Now, prior to the Bob Wilson story, was there really much national attention on the Foo Fighter uh, story? Did anyone even had it, had it even entered the public consciousness yet, or, or was that really the first time that it sort of people had heard about it back in America? That was the first time that term was ever even heard of, and pretty much that, that kind of story. I believe some of the ordinance related, they called it the Christmas balls, they were glass balls in the, in the disc, were reported and made headlines very minor headlines, like the New York Times, about strange Christmas-like devices seen over Germany. That could have been Foo Fighters. That was misidentified. The press didn't realize what was being seen, and they only had so much information. But the first time that the Foo Fighters and this phenomenon took off in terms of that they, they were aircraft, possibly, was with the Bob Wilson story. Yeah. Now, I got the impression that that media explosion sort of only lasted a brief period of time, and then it sort of died out. Is that uh, accurate? Yeah, absolutely. A couple months, it petered out. It, yeah. was, it was a flurry for like two months. And even then, it took the bat seat to everything else that was going on in the war. Mm -hmm. So, And when Time and Newsweek released their story, it was literally a paragraph or two. Oh, wow. It was nothing. Yeah. It was just, here's what our boys are seeing, and here's what the scientists are saying. And uh, it just dropped. It just you know, the consciousness of the people. Yeah. There you have it, folks. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Big, big thanks to Keith Chester for coming on the show and giving us so much time. Of course, he'll be back next week to finish up the conversation. I'll preview that in a little bit. If you want to find out more information on Keith Chester, unfortunately, he does not have a website, but you can pick up Strange Company Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II. 
at Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, go to Anomalist Books, or go to your bookstore and order it. Go through any of those methods and you'll be able to get your hands on a copy of this fantastic book. Definitely check it out. I highly recommend Strange Company. Before we dive into the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag, I should throw out a plug here. I did an interview this past week on Jeremy Vaney's Culture of Contact podcast. Definitely check that out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And this week's letter is one that I discussed on my Culture of Contact appearance, but I only read a little bit of it, and I want to dig right into the whole text of the email here. This letter comes from Terry, No Hometown Listed. Here's what she has to say. Hi, I have a friend who claims to have some alien animals. He says they're ferret-like and friendly, and of course, they're invisible. He claims that he got them last summer, and they have been with him ever since. Since last summer, they have had babies, and now they're suddenly dying. He asked me to help him, and asked that I contact MUFON about this, and he says he needs help in keeping them alive. I don't know if there's anything to be done, or even if they're real, but I will do as he asks on the off chance they're real, and I can't see animals in pain. Please, if there's anything you can do to help, let me know, and I will pass it along. Thanks so much in advance, Terry. So there you go. Terry, thank you for writing to me. As I noted on Culture of Contact, when I originally read the email and responded to it, I didn't see the word invisible for some reason. It was actually invisible, I guess, to my eyes. So I wrote Terry back saying, if you can get a picture of the animals, send it to me, and then maybe we can figure out what to do about it. She probably thinks I'm some sort of jerk, so Terry, I apologize. I skimmed right over the invisible part and didn't even notice that. So I'm not really sure what to say. I guess we'll extend the call to help for the BOA Audio listeners. If you've got some invisible alien animal care advice, definitely send it my way, and I'll forward it along to Terry. This is an honest-to-goodness email that I got, folks. Definitely one of the strangest ones I've ever received. Thanks again for writing, Terry. It's much appreciated. I'm sure the animals will be in good shape one way or another. If you'd like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, there's two ways to do it. Either you go to binallofamerica.com, click the contact button on the left-hand side of the screen. That will bring you to the BOA contact page with all the appropriate information. Or you can simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Either one of those methods puts your correspondence in the BOA Audio listener feedback inbox. Up next is the thanks portion of the program. Super huge thanks to the fantastic BOA staff for your help and support with the audio series and the website. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Tina Senna, week in, week out, providing top-notch reading material for BinAllOfAmerica.com. This past week at the website, Tina Senna wrote about her run-in with the blue light phenomenon when she was a kid. It's a very creepy story. It's very cool. Definitely check that one out. In Grey Matters, Leslie discussed the stark difference in press coverage between the UFO press conference from a couple weeks ago and the Richard C. Hoagland press conference from earlier in the month of November and tries to come to some sort of conclusion about why there was such a big difference between the press coverage of those two press conferences. Following that, Chiron of the K-Files fame wrote about his personal experience with sleep paralysis, a very entertaining piece from Chiron. 
definitely worth checking out for anyone who's experienced something strange happening to them in the middle of the night. Chiron looks at it with his own special Chironic point of view. So there's tons of stuff going on at the website, aside from the audio you're listening to right this very moment. As we say, week in and week out, here on the program, if you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at banalofamerica.com, you're only getting half the story. Banalofamerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the time, of course, where we ask for donations. Folks, this program is free of charge. It definitely cost me a pretty penny to make the phone calls to acquire the bandwidth necessary for all of our great listeners to be able to download the program, and of course lots of time and effort go into putting together the programs. We need your donations to keep BOA Audio and BanalofAmerica.com in the black. We're hovering in the red right now. We'd like to get the program back in black, like the old ACDC song says. How can we get it back in the black? That's simple through donations from great BOA Audio listeners like you. Here's how you do it. You go to banalofamerica.com, click the PayPal button. It's either on the front page of the website or in the audio archive page. That'll put you on the road to making a donation, which will go towards making sure that the website and the audio series is freely available for all of our great listeners the world over. So, go to BOA, click the PayPal button, make a donation. It would be greatly appreciated. Now, I know last week we teased that we'd have the new merchandise up at BOA on Black Friday. We ran into a couple snags. The gist of it is, while an image may look really cool on your computer screen, when you get it into the shop and you start looking at it on merchandise, you start to notice little things that need to be adjusted. That's pretty much where we're at right now. In all honesty, I could have rolled the merchandise out on Friday, but I don't want to roll out crap. So my artist is working double time right now to fix some of the little mistakes and some of the little quibbles that I had with some of the images. We expect to have the new BOA line and the store for the BOA line up and running at denallofamerica.com, hopefully on Monday, possibly by the time you're listening to this, unless, of course, you're listening to it five minutes after I put it up. But if you're listening to this later on in the weekend, Sunday evening, or Monday, Tuesday, one of those days, hopefully we'll have the BOA store up and running and ready for you to check out the new merchandise and hopefully make some purchases. All right, having yakking and yakking here, but we got one more part of the program to get to, of course, and that's the preview for next week. You already know the guest. It's Keith Chester, but this time it's part two of two, and again, we'll be talking about Strange Company, military encounters with UFOs in World War II. Our conversation is going to continue as we discuss why the Foo Fighters probably weren't St. Elmo's Fire, the relationship between Foo Fighters and radar, similarities and differences between Europe and Pacific aerial phenomena, post-war information gleaned about the Foo Fighters from Germany and Japan, and the potential for German UFO technology. We'll also delve into those big picture questions that we love here on the program as we'll find out what Keith really thinks the Foo Fighters were as a whole how the Foo Fighter phenomena fits into the theory that nuclear testing is what attracted the UFOs, what did the government really think the Foo Fighters were, did they ever, and if so, at what point, consider that they were extraterrestrial craft, and the trials and tribulations of finding witness testimony to the Foo Fighter era. Additionally, at the end of the program, we're going to talk about Keith's mentor, Len Stringfield, and his role in shaping ufology. So we're going to get a little biography portion of the program at the end. As always, there's tons and tons more. I just scratched the surface there on that little preview. 
So come on back to BOA next week for more with Keith Chester talking about strange company, military encounters with UFOs in World War II. And on that note, we wrap it up for one more week. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Until next time, this is Tim and All signing off.